Hello and welcome to the IC Companies and Markets podcast. My name's Ian Smith. I'm the Deputy Companies Editor here at the IC. Joining me today, uh, Bradley Gerrard, our news editor. How are you doing, Bradley, on this cold, cold day? Not too bad, thank you, Ian. Not too bad. We're keeping warm in here. Also, we have with us our sector's editor, Mark Robinson. Mark, how are you doing? All right, thanks, Ian. Thanks very much. Uh, and we also have in the studio Theron Mohammed, our specialist writer who specialises in technology stocks. How are you doing, Theron? Very good. Great to be here. And in the control room, we have, as always, Dominic Toms. How are you doing, Dom? I'm doing brilliantly. Brilliant. Well, today's the Middle East special, um, which perhaps might be appropriate on a day like today, where the UK government has shut down uh, flights to Egypt. And we've seen uh, some of the travel stocks, Thomas Cook and Tui, fall today on the back of uh, these these cancelled flights and further geopolitical volatility in the Middle East. And we have a rather impeccably timed feature about uh, Middle Eastern economies that are perhaps opening up to private investors. And we focused on Iran and the big nuclear accord in, uh, with, between Iran and the six world powers and what that might lead to in terms of opportunities uh, for Western investors and how it affects uh, the energy market. Um, And we also look at Israel as a a key uh, investment destination for private investors and how kind of Israeli stocks um, have fared. But first of all, we're going to talk about news. So I'm going to bring in Bradley. Um, If we could start off talking about Shire, what's happened here at Shire? Yeah, um, it's an interesting story. Obviously, M&A in the pharma sector has been a notable topic this year, largely for things that haven't happened. So we had the Pfizer-Astra deal that was going to go ahead and failed. And then um, Shire itself was due to be sort of well taken over by Abfi, but um, that also fell through that deal. But and it's Shire's, turned from being the uh, takeover target to the acquirer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's turned the tables. Um, not not the big deal that um, the chief executive has said it hopes to do, which would be um, a massive deal for US company, but it's bought Diax, and it's an interesting deal. We spoke to a few people about this, or our, our healthcare reporter Harriet Russell did, and it's people think that Shire might have overpaid a little bit for this in one respect. But that said, what the one drug that this company is looking to buy does. The benefit of it is that the patent is longer. So obviously um, a key thing for pharma groups is having exclusivity over drugs for as long as possible. And this company, Diax, has a drug that helps patients who have um, angioedema, it's like a rare rare disorder, and the patent on it doesn't expire until about 2030, if I remember rightly. So this kind of means that although Shire already has a drug that tackles this disease, the patents on those are much shorter. So so, so it's a defensive take Yeah, on. I mean, we spoke to a farm manager, um, Alex Schlick, at um, Sanlam 4, and he said it was defensive and he said actually um, you know Shire does have a history of kind of what seems like it's overpaying for things but actually its purchases tend to come good so although people might look at this deal and think I'm not sure about the valuation on that company because it's effectively got one drug the drug that it does have um, means that Shire can have you know a revenue stream from that type of drug for much longer and, and there could yet be as you've alluded a bigger uh, takeover target on the horizon yeah exactly yeah um the chief executive fleming um Ornskov said he wouldn't rule out a 30 billion dollar all stock takeover of baxalta so mna you know is still obviously very fervent in the pharma industry and actually interestingly i think it was yesterday glaxo smithline put out a little update to um just remind you know everyone about their skills and abilities and their pipelines yeah exactly mm. so um that's kind of interesting and perhaps signals um you know there might be more m a activity in the um pharma industry before even the year's out okay watch this space worst week for countrywide uh, the estate agent uh, company uh, t- tell us about that why are they struggling 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's um, an interesting thing. Obviously, we talk a lot about the housing sector, and um, usually when we're doing that, we talk about house builders and how well they're doing, and companies are linked to those, are linked to you know home improvement, that sort of thing. But the other aspect, I suppose, of housing is obviously the estate agents, the buying and selling of, of homes, and um, it seems that the um, number of transactions it has fallen, and that that's hurt countrywide. It also hurt other um, estate agents on the on the same day. And we've and we've reported on this a little bit before, right? Because uh, Foxtons, for example, uh, were expecting that. Well, at around the time of the general election, there was a bit of you know people reticent to put their houses on the market, perhaps uh, understandably, uh, and they were expecting that to come back a bit more strongly after the general election. It hasn't quite done so. Yeah, I mean, I think the uh, the post election sort of boost um, was was. There was partly one because obviously um, stamp duty and everything was um, restructured, which helped. But the the, the issue that you have is, um, I mean, data out from Halifax this morning showed that the um, price of houses and flats in the UK rose 10% in the past year. Mm. So, you know, the average house price now in the whole of the UK is um, just over £205,000. So while there are sort of, you know, there's there's some sort of wage growth in the UK, you could argue that might buoy the housing market once again, or that the amount of transactions that there are. But it seems that the price of houses compared to the amount people are earning is that that ratio is becoming quite strange. yeah yeah it's, it's, it's a hot market okay uh, interestingly shorebrook um a lender one of the kind of challenger banks today uh, said that um commercial mortgage uh, kind of commercial transactions and um, from their side demand for commercial mortgages came back quite strongly after the election so obviously um it, it's a it's a patchy picture across uh, the property sector very interesting. Okay, elsewhere in news, um, I'm going to bring you in here, Mark. Uh, you've written about the prospects for the oil price, and uh, hedge funds are betting the oil might go lower. You think that the risks are definitely weighted to the downside on the oil price. Is that right? Yeah, as we as we draw to the close of uh, 2015, I guess it's uh, it's a big question for all investors, really. Um, and a very popular one at our London Investor Show, wasn't it? Well, certainly, yeah, because as we know, it has a read across to any number of other sectors, the oil price uh, and global economies itself. Um, I just thought I'd include it this week because we had some more PMI data out from uh, China, which uh, was an improvement through October, but it still uh, indicates that China's uh, industrial activity is is in a contraction. And it's been in that uh, phase for about eight months now, even though there was a slight improvement in October. And it also came at the same time that uh, Russia hit a post-Soviet peak for uh, oil and gas production as well. And we're also looking at the possibility, as we'll talk about in a few moments, about Iran coming back into uh, the world oil and gas markets in a a big way. So all of this doesn't um, do anything to support prices. And it's it's slightly ironic in a sense because there's a couple of other uh, articles within the magazine this week. Uh, John Barron, who's uh, talking about... uh, his uh, long-term um, investment strategy. and it's kind of uh, investment trusts focusing on commodities, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, he's actually taking a long-term view of this, and he, and he remains positive over the long haul as well, which I think uh, we are to a, a large extent as well. But certainly at the moment, the outlook is, is uh, downcast. Although I, I hasten to add that uh, our editor, John Human, gathered uh, the information for the COPOC reading for October, and that is actually registered a buy signal for precious metals and crude oil as well. So I guess, I guess aside from the, the standard geopolitical um, arguments that, are, that affect the oil price as well, it's a downcast view going into 2016. 
But that hasn't stopped uh, the likes of uh, Total and Statoil and Royal Dutch Shell looking to drive up production um, as as they're benefiting from a long-term uh, investment cycle. And the oil majors you've written about uh, on a number of occasion, uh, occasions have really upped their capital discipline. So it could be that when the oil price comes back that these companies are in better shape uh, than they are right now in terms well, of their costs. Well, certainly in terms of their balance sheet, they will be as well. I mean, uh, there's... Um, Let's not forget that in this th- the third quarter as well, I cite some recent research from Wood McKenzie, who did point out that there was about $9 billion worth of impairments just in that third quarter as well. So the things are, are still far from rosy. But uh, at some point, uh, this new production that's coming through the market will be met by increased uh, uh, production growth in Asia as well. And... Um, as things stands, we expect global um, oil demand to tick up by about 1.3 million barrels a day. Uh, that's a forward estimate over the next uh, five years or so. So at some point, those lines are going to cross and the market will move into equilibrium. And then we'll, we'll see a, a standard in- increase in oil prices. OK. Uh, one of the things that you, you've written about both in the feature and in the news stories, is the prospect of Iran oil reserves coming on and, and being one of the sh- short-term, at least, or medium-term downward factors on the oil price. Perhaps we can turn to the feature now. I suppose yeah. the background to this is the July accord struck between Iran and the uh, the six world powers, the five plus one, about its nuclear program. So, so the Western powers agreed to lift certain of their sanctions, the vast majority, against Iran. And in return, Iran agreed to suspend uh, some of its nuclear activities. I suppose kind of leaning on from that, if we start on the energy side, which is where there's the most immediate impact, what I found quite interesting about your piece, Mark, was I didn't realise that Iran was the third largest producer of oil in OPEC. You know, yeah. It might be surprising to some people. I mean, it's a, it's a major player. Oh, yes, without a doubt. I mean, that's in terms of readily accessible crude, like Venezuela has larger reserves but uh, they're uh, it's very low grade crude for the most part uh, if you look at the uh, the oils produced by Iraq and Iran uh, it's it's low cost it's relatively easy to refine and so if you're looking at OPEC you've got Saudi Arabia probably Iraq at the moment and then Iran in terms of uh, the reserves of that easily accessible oil and there's and there's reason to think that uh, We'll see a substantial step up in Iranian reserves as well because the uh, the country's uh, infrastructure or the country's oil and gas infrastructure, yeah, I wouldn't say it's necessarily archaic, but it doesn't uh, benefit from uh, the advanced technologies that Western companies have to offer. And you, well, you've, you've written a bit about um, some of the history of it, and, but also about the, the, the more recent how sac- sanctions have impacted on Iran. Perhaps you could kind of give us an overview of, of how you think that's limited them and what the lifting of sanctions might mean. Well, it, it's particularly pronounced with regard to exports as opposed to production, and the production itself has uh, fallen away because Iran hasn't been able to fund um, replacement barrels, so even and and a lot of wells come to their natural life, and Iran hasn't been able to sort of allocate the capital to um, you know to fund those replacement barrels. But the the impact on exports has been been more pronounced, and the figures aren't exact here because there's different estimates depending on uh, who you look at. But uh, the the export rate could be down by as much as uh, 1.2 million barrels uh, a day compared to the rate prior to the sanctions. And Iranian oil exports declined to an average of 1.4 million 
uh, barrels through 2014. So it just shows the the extent of the, the step away there. They have been able to export uh, a little more crude into uh, some of the emerging uh, market economies, India and China. But uh, previously, they had been exporting to 20 countries. That's down to half a dozen now. And so it, it's had an immediate impact on in terms of their capital and their ability to uh, fund their OPEX and CAPEX commitments. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of the opportunities for European and particularly UK companies that are getting into that sector, obviously, we should caveat all of this discussion with we've seen the rhetoric on from the hardliners on both sides of this deal and every such deal is, is fragile. But as you've written, um, the people that work in the energy industry are very much uh, have already kind of travelled to Iran and are very much ahead of the politicians in um, deciding, you know, making trying to make kind of uh, forays um, and, and uh, you know, extend, expand business lines in Iran. What are the particular companies you think or sectors that could benefit from a kind of greater engagement? Well, I think one area that's really worth looking at is the petrochemical and uh, refining uh, sectors there. Um, even though Iran is one of the, uh, the lar- has one of the largest reserve bases in the world, it has an extremely low uh, refining capacity. And that essentially means that the, comp- that the country loses billions every quarter from having to uh, import uh, uh, finished oil and gas products back into the home market, which is an extraordinary uh, extraordinary lack of planning Mm. and strategic initiative on the part of the Iranians. But there are signs that they're uh, already looking around to get Western expertise uh, on on this basis. Um, There's there's a couple of large refinery projects that are uh, broken ground or they they haven't uh, gone into the build stage yet. Uh, But uh, the type of companies that... that, um, that could uh, benefit from this are obvious uh, engineering and uh, oil service companies. I've mentioned Amec Foster Wheeler, which was uh, possibly not good timing given that they've cut their dividend by half today, and and the industrial engineering uh, group uh, Weir as well. But there are any number of uh, uh, oil service and engineering companies in the UK that, that could benefit. Um, Iran is meeting with a lot of uh, trade delegates at the moment, um, so, so we expect some um, action on this in the coming months, particularly, as you mentioned, if if those sanctions are indeed uh, uh, lifted. And I know Iran, uh, Iranian officials have been quoted saying they hope them they might be before the end of the year, but predictions seem to be more likely they will be into next year. And just for, just finally on this, I mean, what do you think is the impact on the on the oil majors, you know, the BPs, etc.? Well, there, there's a, there's about a hundred. The the Iranian um, Energy Department said there's about a hundred billion dollars in new products coming uh, projects coming on planned over the next few months and so the likes of BP and Exxon they're in already talking to people um, eventually Iran hopes to um, ramp up its production to about 5.7 million barrels a day as well but that's some way down the line but to do this they're going to need uh, western capital and they're going to do, need western expertise as well so um, the uh, strategy makers in Tehran would be as keen as anyone to actually um, see these ventures through. But it's a double-edged sword, of course, because, I mean, from an investment point of view, you, you, you always need to look at the geopolitical angle there. And uh, the stumbling block, of course, is Saudi Arabia, uh, which, is, uh, which is hardly um, 
uh, how do you want to see Iran extending its influence within, mm-hmm. within the region itself? Uh, and there's all sorts of reasons for this, but um, at, at the moment that could prevent, uh, present a major stumbling block. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and elsewhere in the future, we talk about some of the other sectors um, that could kind of gain from a closer relationship with Iran. Uh, we, I spoke to the organiser of the Europe-Iran Forum, uh, who said that anything that touches the consumer is going to be big in Iran. Um, if you look at um, so how some of the Gulf states, uh, their demand for luxury products, uh, that's a particular area. Um, so, you know, plenty of other opportunities. And we've also seen uh, in cosmetics, the French company Sephora saying that it's, which is part of LVMH, the luxury uh, cosmetics group, is planning to open several shops in, in Iran as early as next year. Um, so UK companies definitely uh, are going to be trying to join that join that race. Well, this is a bit of a two-sided um, feature because we also look at Israel. And, and obviously, uh, Theron, you've kind of talked about Israel, the startup nation. It's a title of a recent book that you've d- discussed in here. But, you know, many of our readers will be uh, familiar with certain Israeli stocks. And you've given a really interesting overview of the sector. Um, were there any particular companies you would you would draw out as being kind of quite good ones to look at to get an idea of, of, of this country? Yep. So we highlight companies such as XL Media, which is a mobile marketer, which basically funnels players from other websites to online gambling companies. Mm. So that one's done very well. And there's a couple of such kind of marketers yeah. uh, that are listed there. But I mean, it's a sort of a it's a difficult one to judge which ones are going to blossom and become very prominent given they're all quite early stage and mm. quite small so we're being cautious with uh, which ones we recommend investing in yeah no definitely i mean you did write about mobile eye uh, becoming the largest flotation in, in israeli history so obviously when it can go right it can go very right yep so israel's actually in the past four decades they've had more than 75 billion dollar businesses bloom from startups and you've talked uh, through some of the reasons uh, which I would recommend people read as, as to w- what that might be. But some of our readers would say, well, we've also seen some uh, some blow-ups as well. Uh, we've seen some companies that have promised a lot but have been quite difficult in some ways to understand. Um, and then we've seen kind of bigger, bigger blow-ups. I, I would mention Plus 500 as a good yeah. example. You give us a bit of an overview there. Well, I, I'd argue there haven't been that many disasters, in fact, but mm. Plus 500 is definitely the one that sticks out, although it ended up uh, being acquired in the end, so it wasn't a totally terrible result. And this but, was the contact yeah. for difference um, provider, right? Yeah. yeah, kind of trading provider that f- fell foul of um, kind of providing uh, money laundering protocols. And then, yeah, it had a, a well-publicized um, travails. Uh, but as you've said, you know, it, obviously another kind of um, software group has seen great value in it. So, yeah, so do you think that people, um, do you think the, the, the kind of Israeli stocks are unfairly kind of targeted? Do you think there haven't been that actually that many disasters? I definitely don't think there have been that many disasters. And in fact, if you look at the kinds of companies investing in Israel, we mentioned WPP recently bought uh, a Tel Aviv-based data analytics agency. MNC Saatchi has invested in their Stride Gaming. And we also highlight a couple um, really good companies coming out of Israel. So Telet Communications, which is uh, leading the charge towards um, connected cars and telematics. And Cineworld, of course, had this big deal, which got it several cinemas in, in Jerusalem and Israel. But as you've written, some of these companies, because of their um, popularity among international investors, trade at quite high ratings. Yeah. Uh, so, so, what, yeah, so what would you kind of say to readers about how much caution they should take when they approach these stocks? Well, I think, um, as with a lot of sectors, it's a mixed bag. So you have the cross riders of the sector, which trade at very high premiums, and then 
other cheaper options, which we highlight in the article. And I'd also like to say we have a, a very good infographic on the Israeli companies, which will be on the website on Friday. So the listeners should check that out. Yeah, thoroughly recommend that. You've also you've looked at um, kind of Startup Nation, this, this, the story of Israel's economic miracle. Um, what do people attribute um, Israel's success at kind of building some of these kind of startups? You've said it's almost like the second Silicon Valley, some people refer to it. What, what, why, what do you think is behind that? Well, at risk of spoiling the article, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah. Um, I, I draw out four main factors. So uh, just quickly, um, there's been several waves of immigration into Israel. So there's a bit of self-selection going on that maybe the more brave, enterprising people have emigrated to Israel. One's more likely to start a successful company. There's also the mandatory military service. So maybe they're more natural leaders and ones who are more skilled at maneuvering and teamwork. Interesting. Um, yep. And we also mentioned work by Malcolm Gladwell and Nassim Taleb arguing that um, adversity can lead to outperformance and it makes people more resilient to when things go bad. If you've been through a lot, you're more likely to come out the other end intact. And finally, this is a, from a Harvard Business Review story in 2014 where the the authors argued that um, Israeli companies target middle ground um, markets rather than going for very small markets where maybe the locals are more familiar with the regulation and it's very competitive or very large markets where they might run into Microsoft or IBM. They target middle ground markets where they can bring an edge to the area. Yeah. I think yeah. you, could, you could also say draw a parallel between um, Iran and Israel as well in that they've both got uh, young, well-educated workforces too which obviously feeds uh, feeds into that sort of growth. Yeah, Iran itself has uh, you know a fair amount of these kind of startup companies. It has its own startup sector. It's it's less mature, uh, but you you be it'd be interesting once the kind of the ties between the economies if they continue to be uh, built up following the lifting of sanctions. Whether we'll see some of these Iranian companies. Well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, what you'd think would follow from this would be a, a liberalisation uh, not only of uh, business regulation as well, but also mindsets. And so you might get. Uh, young young people staying on in Iran. I mean, of course, the, the, there's a the, there's a brain drain underway there, which uh, over time can turn into a structural um, problem for the economy as well. So I'm sure there's that same dynamism within Iran that just needs to be unlocked. Mm. So having put it on the cover and said all this, we've probably put the complete mockers yes. on the Iran <laughs> West deal. It's, it's doomed. Uh, but yeah, thank you so much, everyone, for for joining me. Elsewhere in the in the issue uh, this week, as mentioned, John Barron on the Commodity Investment Trust, uh, our Bearball column takes a look at Kemring. And we've also had the latest edition of the IC Book Club. So that's your IC every week, £4.50 and all good news agents. Thank you very much for joining us. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 